This is the Yay, I'm Reg Clay. And Dave Mosher is here. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> and uh, this is the Yay, where we talk about life in the theater and the theater of life. As always, we are sponsored by Central Works, a new play theater headed up by Gary Graves and Jan Leifler. Central Works, reinventing theater one play at a time. As always, we want to thank Central Works for sponsoring us and our wonderful consulting producer, Mallory Samara. And sitting in front of me is uh, someone who has lived in Germany for a long time, but prior to that, uh, she's here in the Bay Area. We did Candide together, and I'm just uh, thrilled she's back. She is doing um, the Versimio Verismo Opera, um, performing in Vallejo uh, as Valentine. Rachel Deathridge. Rachel, how are you? Doing well. <laughs> Great uh, it, to be here. Yeah, and uh, and Dave Moultrie, you're my guest host. Thank you so much for uh, coming out here this uh, Wednesday evening. I had to look to see what day it is. <laughs> you're very welcome. I Thanks for being accommodating. It's fun yeah, to be a guest host. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the last time I talked to you, Dave, was uh, in 2019, before, only months before everything just shut down and the world was just very, very different those days. But um, how is everybody doing? Um you know, we survived the rain and a little bit of cold and other things going on. Are we doing okay? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I made it here. So. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm very, very thankful. Yeah. How are you doing, Dave? You're in, you're, you're in the middle of something. Aren't you doing a show? Yeah. I'm doing a couple productions right now. I'm I'm getting ready to open Sunday in the Park with George. Hey, yeah. Sondheim. Yeah. I love that. You, George you, Surratt. You know I love you know I love the Sondheese. Mm-hmm. I can't <laughs> So doing that with the Youth Musical Theater Company. Mm-hmm. Um uh, opens in a couple weeks. And then after that I'll be working with Mountain Play, uh, supervising for Into the Woods. Mm-hmm. Um and then uh, Wizard of Oz at ACT in a reimagination sort of yeah. uh in, very interesting production. So yeah, a lot of projects in the fire. It feels like we're finally kind of like, okay, we're we're doing theater again at the same sort of pace that we were before. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to just everybody waiting on pins and needles. I'm not sure if it's been like that in Germany or. But I, I mean, I was I was in Germany for like a year. Um, New York, because I was in New York for oh, four years right. prior. New York, everything shut down. I mean, it was it was definitely wild at one point because I was like walking to go pick up my last paycheck and 42nd street which is like the Times square area was just empty wow. there was no one there and there Boy. was one guy across the street who like waved at me and i was like this does not happen in new york <laughs> it is really really crazy and it's been a it's been a very long time since i've been to new york 42nd street and broadway has always been crowded as crowded as if it were um i don't know the fourth of july or fourth july weekend or yeah you know, Pride Week, you know, yeah, in, yeah. here in the Bay Area. And, uh, yeah, I mean, COVID-19, and I understand sh- being shut down. I mean, there have been so many, here on the A, we've been talking about theaters that have shut down. Um, uh, we have Bay Area musicals in San Francisco shut yeah. down right after. Yeah. At least companies. Um, yeah. Physical theaters themselves, I mean, yeah. they all shut well, down. Well, I mean, yeah, well, I mean, the flight deck is shut down. Uh, the exit theater, they are no longer opening their doors. Uh, piano fight, yeah, closed their doors, which was a big, big shock. Yeah, uh, the Douglas Morrison Theater, you like, know, where, where we, we all did met. Candide, shut down. I believe it's opening back up. Yeah, there, there, okay. there has been some talks in the city of Hayward to to bring in other people because it's still it's, like a fully functional, evidence. great yeah. theater and yeah. costume shop, but they they had to cut most of their staff, like all of their staff. Yeah, and I mean, some places just 
weren't able to survive for a, a numerous reasons. But yeah, that, that was sad. It was a really special little theater. Yeah, yeah. I remember um, I was doing um, we there's a company called Plethos Productions. We were going to do Tiny Beautiful Things at the Douglas Morrison during the time that COVID that everything just shut down, and in real time, you know. We were supposed to be scheduling rehearsals at the space, and we were told no, no one's entering the space. And I was, I had a contract of like being paid a thousand dollars, and it got cut down to three hundred because that was the time that actually worked. And they were like, "Hey, we're not paying anyone else." And then a week after that, uh, Terry, uh, I forget his last name. He's oh, the production the, manager. Yeah, yeah, the production manager. Um, he was like, "I'm out of a job," and yeah. all those guys are uh, early wine and the the master builders yeah you know the Duxworth theater is just a very very special place i hope that it uh picks back up again but lots of wonderful people the nice pa- thing pamela the, hicks yeah uh mariana wolf uh go ahead dave the nice thing is uh the theater itself is not being like turned into something else like that's good because so many times like the work we want to do whether opera or musical theater we need a space that either has an orchestra pit that has mm-hmm. the backstage can have a large audience yeah and that was what was one of the things special about that. I mean, a government-run building or a city-run building. Yeah. So, what? But I'm really curious, Rachel. What it like when you were in Germany? Like, there's just like opera. You can more opera companies and opera houses than you can throw a stone at. Like, what's the opera culture like there versus here? Yeah. So, I mean, definitely the public has a lot more knowledge of what's there. Um, when I was there, we still were going in and out of lockdowns because they kept it going for a while longer. So there was one point where they reopened everything and I went and saw like three punk concerts in one week. And I went and saw like the orchestra and I went like, I just went and was like, all right, let's go do all the things because I was like stir crazy from New York. And then, um, just being in this little studio apartment in Berlin for so long. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was it was still very interesting because they were still navigating that. They were taking things very seriously, and so the job that I got in Austria singing Chenarentula, um, mm-hmm. I applied online, and they just watched a video of me. I didn't even audition live, so they they were they there. And there's actually a lot of companies that have started doing that, and some of them I talked to the people in charge, and they were saying they might even keep that going. Yeah, which. What you, in some you, ways might be good. Yeah, what are the pros and cons of that from your perspectives as performers? Yeah, so from the perspective of a performer, um, I feel like it's helpful to some people who otherwise would be unavailable to the opportunity just because of funding. Because the opera world especially is so, it so caters to people who have a lot of money which then cuts out a lot of really phenomenal talent. Yeah, yeah you were talking about that off mic, that it sounds, it's, it's almost like privilege. You know, if you're privileged enough to have mm-hmm. the dresses, the, the time there. The yeah. time for lessons, the time to study, yeah. leisure time. And even applications, right? Don't the applications mm-hmm. cost money too? Even applications can cost money. I mean, it's, it's super, super wild. And it's crazy because I'll end up doing shows with people who are so talented and it's like, you know, some of my fellow cast members, it's like, I'm sitting there and I, I lived in New York. I saw people on stage at the Met and I'm like, dude, you should be at the Met. Like you are phenomenal. And so it's, it's just wild kind of the way that things work out and, mm-hmm. uh, how people can find their path. And, and I mean, ultimately a lot of times I, I have faith and hope that, you know, 
talent will shine through and, and people will be given opportunities. But uh, yeah, it's it's definitely a wild world. It's it's a whole different ball game. It's really weird. Yeah, I've got tons of questions about your experience in Europe, and also just your upbringing. And we'll talk all about that. We, you know, we have lots and lots of time. There have been uh, some current events. I tried to mix in, you know, both the serious and the fun stuff. But um, so I'm reading um, Parade, which is a play on Broadway. It's about anti-Semitism. This is about uh, the Leo Frank story. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. He was. Um, um, I think he was lynched. I think he was uh, attacked by Southerners. Um, and um, so basically what, what's happened, um, the, the production is on Broadway right now, and they were met out by a group of individuals who had some anti-Semitic um, remarks about the play itself. I don't know what the – it's a national socialist group um, – but uh, it, it always surprises me. I mean, as a black man, I'm used to seeing racism by black people. I'm, you know, there are Asian people that we've had on the eighth. They've talked about, you know, racism. But anti-Semitism, I thought that was sort of an older thing and that it doesn't happen. But it still happens. And it's sad. Oh, yeah. 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 It's sad that we're still in a time when a, a show like Parade, which was set in 1918, that's true events that happened in 1923, 1918 yeah. Georgia. Yeah. And I think it's the 100th still, anniversary of it. That's why yeah. they're doing it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's depressing that that's the anti-Semitism that they were, um, the show was written about is still just as prevalent today. Yes, it is. I had a, had a good friend who, um, is a cantor, uh, Emma Lutz, who's a cantor down in LA, who we, um, worked together in theater when I first moved to California and she, uh, wrote a, she's a cantor for her synagogue down in, um, in LA and mm-hmm. and she read this news and she is very still into musical theater and, and wrote this very beautiful um, letter to her community um, that was inspiring, but also about how sad it was that it's still happening. But she had been in touch with Julie Platt with Ben Platt's mother who she knows through another congregation mm-hmm. down there just today. And um, yeah, it's, it's sad. And it's also, this is why we do theater to keep, keep the conversation going yeah yeah and to prove to people that we're not in a post-racist society a post-anti-semitic society yeah one question i wanted to ask you rachel since you've had some time i've I've had some time overseas as well what as an american explaining to someone like i have a friend in india i have a friend in uh, kyrgyzstan uh which i may be visiting uh in june and they always have a hard i always have a hard time explaining the the dynamics of american life and why is there racism and why, you know, what's going on? Have you had, I don't know, have, when you were in Europe, um, did you have people ask about, you know, what is American life and what's going on over there and how could it be so great if, you know, we keep on hearing these bad news? Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> ah, where to start? Okay, so um, with regards to anti-Semitism specifically, because I was coming from New York and there's... Um, a larger, at least for me, mm-hmm. having lived in California my whole life before prior to living in New York, um, it was a little bit surprising to me that there is a much more uh, obvious, like apparent um, group of Jewish people that oh, are, yes. oh, you know, yes. very visibly Jewish mm-hmm. with their, you know, Hasidic Jews, yeah. Hasidic Jewish uh, garb and, you know, women who wear the wigs and all that jazz and, you know, um, and, uh, 
it's wild because like my husband was on a bus at one point and uh there was a bus driver he was just spouting off all this anti-semitic stuff Hmm. and uh he worked at columbia university and there was a teacher who had tenure Mm -hmm. so he has tenure but he kept spouting a bunch of anti-semitic stuff and so columbia university was trying to like balance like what do we do um which cough cough so they fire can, him they just get straight fire him hmm. <laughs> yeah somehow there was some kind of legality that was like in the way of things but then um when i went to germany of course germany has like so many laws with the aftermath of world war ii sure, sure. that they're like a lot more hardcore about stuff like that so they hmm. actually had i'm forgetting what it was for but they had a piece of art that they commissioned and it had something that was against um like the the current fighting going on between mm-hmm. um the Jewish people and the Islamic people oh, and yeah, even yeah, that yeah. they were like no like hard hard pass like we paid for this art we we're not showing it to the public we can't I see. yeah like they're just so mm-hmm. tentative and worried about coming across as anti-semitic sure. that now it's just like a absolutely not no we're not going to do that however um there was because when I went out there, I had connections to people in the Fulbright community. Mm-hmm. There was one woman who was out there teaching as part of Fulbright, and um, she mentioned that she was Jewish, and somebody in her class, because she was teaching, somebody in her class was just like, well, I can't learn from someone who's Jewish, blah, blah, and just like lost it. So it's like, it's still prevalent around the world. Yeah. I mean, I for with respect for that, like historically speaking... I'm not a practicing Jew. My brother is, or is sort of, um, but we're Ashkenazi Jewish, which is like oh, interesting. I didn't know that yeah. the European yeah. side of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and not like, like I said, like I didn't. My dad grew up Catholic. My mom grew up, you know, whatever Protestant or whatever. So it's not something that like I grew up in that community. But sure. um, but it is something that I've always been kind of like. What the heck, man? <laughs> yeah, it, it, is, heck? it is crazy. It, it's it's wonderful. It's it's amazing how Germany has embraced not being anti-Semitic or being very very sensitive to that in a yeah, way that America really has not. I mean, yeah. we have a much more extensive history of racism and Jim Crow and mm-hmm. holding on to the flag and all yeah. that stuff. And David, you know about this because you grew up in uh, North Carolina, yeah. so you had you know you saw a lot of that. And you would think if Germany, which has only had maybe, I don't know, from the 40s up to now of, you know, of just anti-Semitism, but to let it go, what's wrong with the United States and the Deep South letting go of racism and, and all of this stuff? So it's it's all very, very crazy. And um, we can move on to other things. Dom Lemon, um, he is a um, and uh, he's one of the uh, announcers at CNN um, uh, uh, host. Uh, apparently, he was put on timeout because he made a very derogatory comment about Nikki Haley. Uh, and Nikki Haley is, she's running for president in 2024, and she's 51 years old. She looks great at 51, and I don't think she's old. But apparently, Don Lemon says, well, she's past her prime. I think she was just he was just attacking a Republican, but he chose very, very bad words. And he was put on pause, and it just brings up the whole discussion about women and what is old and you know uh, and I've, I've had a bunch of women sitting in this chair right here have talked about just in the theater world how they don't get parts anymore 
they don't get cast anymore. Mm. They are just invisible mm-hmm. when they reach the 35 or more. Do you think about that, Rachel, at all? Oh, 100%. There's a vast amount of, especially in the opera world, there's a, the majority, I would say, of competitions cut you off once you're 30 as a woman. Mm. And they have a higher age limit for men. Regardless hmm. of talent? Yep. Yep. That is so sad. Yep. So there were some that I didn't qualify for after COVID, and I was like, well... You're not over 30. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, you don't look over 30. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, but I was like, well, I could send them, like, some kind of email and be like, hey, you know, COVID happened, so, like, obviously you didn't hold the competition, so I lost that opportunity, but... Ultimately, with a lot of it, I was just like, I'm just going to let it go because there's other opportunities. And, you know, if it's not meant for me, it's not meant for me. So I'll just move on. I'm, I'm curious. Do you think that that's more that sort of ageism, especially against women? Ageism, turn, turn your mic a little bit, Dave. Oh, sorry. Yeah, that's OK. Like this? You're, you're good. I'm curious if you think that uh, ageism and sexism is uh, more prevalent in the opera community than in the theater community because i know that's true of a lot of actor friends that i have who just say oh i'm i've aged out of the part when in reality like you said the limit is much higher than men they say oh this uh this uh, male presenting actor can can read um can read a, a whole a different age range but they're more particular about that for female presenting yeah i mean it's hard to say because that's not my specialty so i would definitely never want to step on someone's toes and be like well my life is so much harder than yours uh-huh <laughs> like that's just although you could <laughs> i mean i could I mean, there's all sorts of privilege there's you know there's male privilege there's white privilege there's female privilege you know there's mm-hmm. all sorts of so it, it cuts across the way and everyone you know says oh i've suffered more than you but but i mean your perspective do you worry about age as far uh, as being cast and all that stuff it's interesting because I feel like for me, I've just chosen to kind of like have this kind of like acceptance and peace about things as much as I can. Yeah. Like life is wild and crazy and people have all their weird ideas. But at one point I was talking to, I'm not sure if I should say his name or not, but I was talking to a manager that I know in New York and he was saying how he's worked with all these really, really talented people. And at one point he was working with a black man and the or before that he had signed the contract with this man who I won't say his name, but he ended up blowing up and being huge because he's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. But um, the guy was talking to him and he was like, well, you know, there's all these roadblocks for what I want to do because people don't want to hire me because I'm black. And he was like, I'm not worried about that. You're talented. We're going to get you jobs. And he's had the same thing with like ladies who were older, who had wanted to have kids. So they had kids, they left the business, came back, they found this guy and they were talking to him and he has connections in the business or maybe they had worked with him before in the past. I don't know. Um, and they were like, yeah, you know, but oh, I'm over 50 or I'm over 40 or whatever. Mm-hmm. And he mm-hmm. was like, I'm not worried about that. Yeah. You're talented. We're going to, we're going to open doors. So I think like, obviously I don't want to speak from a place of privilege and be like, ah, oh, everything is available to everyone and we're all on even footing because that's not the case. But I do think that, Um, when you work really hard and you have something to offer as a gift to the world that you're like, Hey, this is, this is what I do. And, you know, take it or leave it. This is where I'm at on a Tuesday or whatever, Wednesday, sorry. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, it's like some people, it won't be 
the right gift for them and they won't receive it. Mm-hmm. But other people, it'll really change their life. And um, like as a singer, like I might sing for a whole hall full of people for an opera and they're all a bunch of ritzy rich people who are going there so that they can show off their evening gowns and leave at the intermission so that they can all go get dinner mm-hmm. and have a fun night out. And then I might sing some other venue and there's only like 10 people there, but somebody comes up to me afterwards. Like there was one, there was one Cenerentola that I did, which is the story of Cinderella. And I was Cinderella. And afterwards this little girl came up to me mm. and she was dressed like Cinderella and she was so excited about it. And she mm. thought that I was Cinderella. She was mm. like, Oh my gosh, I'm so excited to meet you. And it's just like, you know, when you have an opportunity to really inspire somebody and show them how much fun music and theater and all these things can be. I feel like if you connect to that and like the joy of things, that's what gets me through. Like the world is wild and I can't control all the different pieces and nuts and bolts of things. And, uh, it's more about quality over quantity in terms of career trajectories and, and the kind of experiences you're, you're looking for. Yeah. I feel like my, My personal, like, current idea is, like, I will put in the work, and I will, like, fall in love with the process, and then the, the like, product or the end result is out of my hands. Yeah. So if I freak out about that, yeah, I can freak out about that. If I'm that nervous and anxious, I probably won't do a good job on, you know, at the audition or whatever. Mm-hmm. So it's, like, I do my best to just, like, meditate and, like, let it go. <laughs> Yeah, but you mentioned about the gatekeeper, the individual that gives you the opportunity, like the Mm -hmm. black individual who's Mm -hmm. like, hey, listen, I've been out of the business for a while, or, you know, I'm black, you know, will you still cast me? We need those gatekeepers. Yeah. And it's a shame that there are gatekeepers around who, for whatever reason, and we've talked about that ad nauseum on this podcast, where it be, you know, whether it be a company within the Bay Area here who's like, well, we're not casting, you know, we're we're not doing a black thing right now, you know, Mm -hmm. or we'll, or the opposite. Well, we need to color our cats. So mm. there you go. You'll yeah. be our token Asian person or our token black person. And the the story has nothing to do with that person's, you know, personality or whatever. Mm-hmm. Or the person is not cast at all. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you really do in a perfect world wants to say, hey, listen, regardless of who I am or my age or whatever, if I have the talent, I will get cast. Someone will find me. I'll, it, somehow it'll happen. And that's the hope. That's the hope. That yeah, that's have. the hope. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is interesting because <clears throat> at least in the world of opera, a lot of pushback happened specifically during COVID. Mm-hmm. So like there's this huge issue with um, finances and funding for opera singers because there's, there's a really big bar set for like, there's fees for everything. There's fees to audition. There's fees to apply yeah. for different things. There's fees to apply to young artist programs, there's fees to apply to competitions, whatever. Um, However, during COVID, all these really, really brilliant, smart people had tons of time on their hands and their jobs were canceled. So like one guy was like, all right, well, I'm going to figure out how much these companies are making Mm -hmm. and I'm going to figure out how much like the people at the top of these companies are making. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to do the math on how much they're paying their young artists. Interesting. And then I'm going to do the math on how much they charge people Mm -hmm. and roughly how many people apply. And he like came up with all these numbers. And so there was a huge pushback. And especially during COVID, Mm -hmm. there was actually a vast number of companies that decided as opposed to having a 35 or $50 
fee to just apply. Mm-hmm. And these are companies that like they'll look at your resume and your resume doesn't impress them and they'll throw it in the trash. They won't listen to your videos. But they'll they take won't, your money. But they will take your money. <laughs> that is not a problem. Right. So this guy kind of created this. He wrote an article about it. It got a whole bunch of people's attention mm. and a bunch of companies dropped their fee to like five dollars. Ten dollars. Excellent. So that was amazing. Yeah. And then mm. um in addition, there were a lot of people who had gotten really, really frustrated with gatekeeping and had kind of always been thinking like, oh, I should start my own company, but I don't have the time, but blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. So they really got into like the business side of things during yeah. COVID and they took that as their moment of like a time to kind of like dive into like, okay, how would I apply for like a nonprofit organization mm-hmm. and how would I get all my ducks in a row? Yeah. And so there's actually... I mean, I don't want to speak for the Bay Area because I don't know, but mm-hmm. in New York especially, there were like a lot of new companies popping up. Yeah. Well, I'm looking at an individual right now who did something very similar, the Awesome Orchestra. Didn't you do the same thing? Ten years ago, Yeah. strangely enough. But yeah. And, you know, we're not near anywhere anything like a resource like an opera company or, or try to do things at scale. But yeah. But the parallels are there. I mean, you know, you were like, hey, listen, let's do something very similar to the opera or an orchestra, but for the people. Yeah, that, that was that's the idea. And it's funny because during COVID, we were so everybody was so. I think struck by how much of an Achilles heel lag time was for internet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just a few microseconds of lag and everybody said, oh, wow, we can't. A lot of other people could do their jobs. Oh, of course. Yeah. We couldn't. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the Zoom theater, there's the Brady Bunch style videos, which we can't really have a jam session online. It's tough. We got very close, but those few microseconds of lack are like an Achilles heel. Yeah. And so we tried various things with our group with Awesome Orchestra Collective. But um, luckily, we were a small enough organization and nimble enough that we didn't have tons of people on staff, or it was all just. Uh, part-time employees who were making it work with our limited funding and whatnot. And we were still were able to get some, some grants and, and some fundraisers and, and managed to get back to, to doing things. But a lot of larger mid-sized venues uh, and orchestras were the ones that really got hurt because they didn't have, yeah. they didn't have, either the resources to stay afloat, mm-hmm. but they also had two, too many things too many bills to pay sure so we were i feel very lucky that awesome orchestra was able to kind of weather the storm in that way and yeah we've just started 10 year 10th year anniversary season so it's fun to be it's wild to think about that but Mm -hmm. it's fun to um it's fun to think about how far we've come and, and also weird to think that three out of those seven three out of those 10 years were during the pandemic Oh, yeah. But uh, hey, it's still going on. No, no, that yeah. is awesome. Thank you. I mean, that's actually like really impressive, though, that you were able to, you know, get back afterwards. Like that's even more impressive in some ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very Thanks. much so. That, that was we weren't. Um, thank you. We weren't so certain. There were a lot of times where we just like we've got to just barely keep the lights on. Mm-hmm. But I have a really great staff and a lot of great people that wanted it to keep happening. But again, we were just scrappy enough. Yeah. That it was like, okay, what do we need for the storage unit mm-hmm. and to keep the website up and the, <laughs> the lights on? And mm-hmm. But yeah, 
Have you ever thought about starting your own company when you were when you were over in, either in New York or in Germany? Um, I have a friend who she runs Bear Opera. It's B A R E, I believe. Oh, yeah. Um, Kirsten, I'm forgetting her last name, but um, she and she and her husband are really great people, and um, we actually met, I think, for the first time officially in Berlin. But um, she owns that company in, in New York. And um, I have mad respect for her. I don't know that that would be something that my talents would be leaning towards. There's, I think, I think there's kind of one of those things of like know your strengths. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, your so, strength is singing and acting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not fundraising and <laughs> writing grants and production yeah. managing. Yeah, yeah, I tried oh, yeah. at one point during COVID. I tried to help out one of the companies by joining their like grant finding team um and i tried to like kind of help out with that and i did it for like a little bit but i was like i am not good at this and so i don't (laughs) feel like i'm aiding you at all so the the only reason to continue would be to be able to like pat myself on the back and be like look at me i'm being nice but it's like i'm not actually good at this so i'm just gonna step back (laughs) yeah no it's important to know those things i mean i envy norman because norman is also an actor and a director and he knows how to manage you know oakland public theater he's been doing it for a while i know i don't have those talents and also it would just drive me crazy i really just want to either create be on stage or write or you know whatever so sometimes we have to know what the lanes are and sometimes knowing what the lane is getting into a lane and realizing no this yeah. isn't happening. Yeah, it can yeah. be really, really beneficial to like try <clears throat> things too. Cause like for the longest time, I was like, I don't ever want to teach. I would be bad at teaching. I have no interest in teaching, mm-hmm. just hard no. And then I ended up getting confident enough in my technique. And I had had people asking me for a long time, like, oh, do you teach? Oh, do you teach? No, 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 mm-hmm. never, no, not going to do it. And then uh, I finally started teaching and like I started out with my first student and I was like, okay, I'm not going to charge you very much money because I don't know if I'm going to be good at this and I'm just going to like try and she's a really nice person. So we'll just see how this goes. Mm -hmm. And then like first lesson, I was like, oh, wow, this is fun and I'm good at it. Like I was so surprised. I called my voice teacher and I was Mm -hmm. like, dude, I'm good at this. (laughs) And he was like, yeah, I figured. (laughs) Like, why would you think you wouldn't be? And I was like, I don't know. I just, I think, so it is good to try things sometimes Mm because we can build something up in our brain and be like, oh, I could never do that. Or like, I just wouldn't have the patience for it or whatever. But then in the moment, it could be something where it actually like works out really well. So that was, you know, there was the one instance of me being like, oh, I'm great at like creative writing and I always wanted to write a novel when I was younger. Like I could do grant writing. I could help with grants. And then I tried it and I was like, Oh, I am absolutely awful at this. (laughs) And then I was like, Oh, I never want to teach. And then I tried teaching and I was like, Oh, okay. (laughs) I'm so curious, Rachel. That's so interesting because I've had a couple of parallels in my life, but why do you think you were so you had told yourself that story or maybe others had told you that story that you wouldn't be good, a good teacher. Um, I think for me, it was because I had some less than stellar voice teachers. And so I was really, really nervous Mm. about not guiding people the right way Mm. Um, because I had had that and I had had friends who have had that. And especially in the opera world, you know, if you if you're really, really gunning for it and somebody takes you in the wrong direction and you push yourself too far, you can end up with vocal nodes. You can end up like there's a world of issues that you can I mean, you can do that with. Broadway and musical theater yeah. too. Um, 
And so I was always very cautious because mostly because I felt like I was ill-equipped. And then I hit a point where I talked to my teacher about it and I was like, you know, I actually feel really confident now as a singer and I feel confident when I audition and, you know, um, I mean, you know, we all have our good days and bad days, obviously. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying like, I'm the best person in the world. No. <laughs> but you felt confident. But I felt to, confident. To pass yeah. on your wisdom. Yeah. So then I, I talked to my teacher and I was like, do you think I could do this? And he was like, yeah, give it a shot. What's the worst that could happen? Yeah. No, I think you have a mix of humility to know what your limitations are. Yeah. And, but also a sense of pride of knowing how good you are. This will be a good time for an origin story. Tell me where you were born and raised, and uh, how did the arts bug bite you? Because it's more than theater, but you know. Sure, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, I was born in Sacramento and raised in Vacaville primarily, which is midway between Sacramento and San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, we should also add that your sister's behind you. Yes, uh, how many, how many other siblings do you have? I have six siblings. Wow, yeah. big family. Yeah, yeah, so I am the second, um, and uh, yeah, grew up, was homeschooled up until high school, Went into high school, did some um, straight theater. I always wanted to do musical theater, but the high school I went to didn't have musical theater. So I did straight theater. Um, And I started studying with my first voice teacher, I think I was 13 or 14. And she was awesome. She was an awesome lady. Um, We're still really close. She's Mm -hmm. kind of like a surrogate grandma, Elaine Reynolds Smith, um, out in Vacaville. Mm -hmm. And... uh, so I worked with her, and I started out with uh, musical theater and folk songs, and um, I adamantly refused any opera or any Italian art songs because I thought it was stupid, and I was not going to sing in a language I did not speak, and the audience didn't know what I was saying. I was like, that's dumb. That's a... Do you, do you still think that? No. <laughs> why, why, why did your mind change? Why do you think that's not So dumb? when I was a kid, it was because... <laughs> Or when I mean a teenager, really. But when I was a teenager, it was because I thought that people who sang opera, I legitimately thought if someone is singing opera, it is just because it's an ego boost Mm. where they're like, I'm so good, I can do this. And I was like, they just like being able to sing high high notes or low notes or sing something in another language. But if Mm. I don't understand what I'm saying, or if the audience doesn't understand you, like, Mm what is anyone getting out of this? Like, I just didn't, I couldn't conceptualize it. Like, I was yeah. so in love with musical theater, and I was like, no, man, this is not where it's at. Where it's at is like, you know, sound of music, bro. Yeah. <laughs> I, did, I did have a question for the both of you, and it's an opera-type question. I really do believe that Americans, out of all of the people in the world, have, a, have less of an appreciation for opera. Hmm. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's how I feel. Do you feel that's true, and, and if so, why? I, I think that's sort of generally considered to be the uh, how the state of things. Yeah, the consensus, probably. You know, I mean, there's a couple reasons, and, and Rachel, let me know if I'm way off base here or, or add in, but I know in other countries, especially in Germany, Austria, and other places, like, the arts are just funded. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so there's not just the actual, like, oh, you want to be, like, in France, if you're a waiter, like, that's a full-time job. Like, yeah. you just... It's the same as like having an office job here. Not exactly the same, but yeah. And if you want to like sing in an opera house, if you have the skill set, people are like, oh, that's a legit career. Yeah. And not like some crazy pipe dream. Yeah. So there's a little bit of culture shift there, I think. And then also the fact that it's funded. But then on top of that, so much of the repertoire, the canon, I'm using quotation marks for those listening, <laughs> the canon, uh, was developed and created there's a much larger longer connection to it over the last 
two, three, four hundred years to that part of the world. And so, whereas in the United States, it concert music, what I like to call concert music, became classical music. The elitism became very, very classist, Mm. and and you know is still throughout the world. But I think um, the way it's taught, the way it's what it means here, you know, it's too long for us to get into it here. But I think sure. Yeah. Would you would you agree with that, Rachel? I would say yeah. There's there's a lot of issues with accessibility. What would be my main mm. point to point out is like having something like awesome orchestra. It's like there are potentially people who that's their first time hearing an orchestra. Yeah. Um, and it's because it's bringing the orchestra to the community and it's allowing them to have access to beautiful, gorgeous, amazing, awesome music. Um, awesome. <laughs> awesome never, music. never gets old. <laughs> never gets old. <laughs> Um, but to kind of bring it back to my story, it was like, for me, what changed my mind about opera was literally watching an opera live for the first time. Which, which opera it. was it? Eugene Onegin. Okay. Where, at SF Opera or up No, in it was in, uh, it was a small company in, I think, Fairfield. Wow. Yeah. And it was wildly amazing. Actually, I think it was my second opera because the first opera I ever went to see was also a community theater production. It was Macbeth. It was long. It was probably more difficult music than some of the musicians were ready for because it's Verdi. <laughs> and so they, they they weren't Verdi singers. Yeah. And so it was kind of a a big thing. to too That's big, a big thing to take sing. on. And yeah. if you don't have the singers for it, it's, it doesn't work so well. So that was actually my first opera that I saw. And I was like, ooh. And then I saw Eugene Onegin, I think a, li- a little bit after... What? As part of a class, and I loved it, and it had the super titles up above. So I understood what they were saying, I understood the plot line, and to me, I had always loved foreign films, and I was like, oh, it's like a foreign film version of a musical theater, and I love musical theater, so like, duh, this makes sense. Of course this is something that I like and enjoy. And All you needed was somebody to turn on the subtitles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> super titles, yeah. Was it like... Did you have, I'm so curious, did you have that experience like in the theater? You were like, was it like a transformative or afterwards you were like, you know, why did I, was it more visceral or more just like Oh no, cerebral? in the theater I was like, like, oh, this is it. This is what I'm going to do for the rest of wow. my life. Fascinating. And it's so, it's so unusual because a lot of other singers, like if you ask any American kid, what do you want to sing? It's like rock and roll or soul or hip hop or. We're more connected know. to pop music. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's very, very unusual for someone to say, you know, I like opera. Like, when I tell someone that I like, you know, Frank Sinatra or, you know, I do the American Songbook, it's like, okay, that's a little interesting, but, you know. Oh, but I but love there's the st- there's still There's still a, um, there's still an artist artist for that. I mean, there's still a, um, there, there's a, there's an audience for that. Oh, there's yeah. a large audience for that. There's still... AM radio stations yeah. that you know still do the American Songbook and Rogers and Amerson and things like that. But opera is even more narrow. I mean, and so it's odd that you were you like sixteen, seventeen? How old were you when you were like this is it? Yeah, I think I was. Mm, yeah, sixteen or seventeen. I was taking a music appreciation class through the college while I was going to high school, so I was required. Nerd to... alert! Just kidding. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> One of my friends jokes that I'm like the nerdiest person that she knows. I'm like, I know, I know. I play tabletop games. I love history. But that's that's part of why opera is so perfect for me is because it's like this mesh of like all the things that I nerd out on. I love history. I've always loved literature. And I always loved like 
reading fantasy stories and sci-fi and like all this stuff in a back room and fantastical stories yeah, larger larger than life yeah 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 and it's like that's the thing with like tabletop games is like you play a tabletop game and everybody has their voices on and they're playing characters and it's Mm -hmm. like that's basically just a bunch of theater nerds getting together yeah yeah i I still remember playing dungeons and dragons with my friends you know what edition did you play we actually did not have the book. We didn't okay. have yeah, Love it. any of the oh, tabletop stuff. We just had like a blank. I remember, you know, me and Derek Stevens and Bernard Curtin, three black kids, which is really, really odd. That's in the awesome. 70s. And we had like a blank um, sheet of paper and like one kid drew a map that none of us could see. It's like, okay, you're in a map, you're in a room. There are three doors. You open what, you know, which one door do you want to go? And we just went on from there and there and there. I have no That's idea. That's amazing. Who. Have you Have you played it since? No, not yet. I mean, not 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 since. Yeah, and uh, you know, maybe maybe one of these days. So you're not Sorry. the only nerd. <laughs> so let's get back to you. Uh, so did you go to college? Did you study um, opera? Yeah. So I went to American River College for two years, and I studied music. Mm-hmm. And I actually ended up graduating with my two year degree in. Uh, I just basically got like an associate's in art or whatever. It was like super generic because I found out to like get all of my ducks in a row for like a two-year music degree. It would take me like an extra semester, an extra year. And I was like, uh, no. So I went and I transferred to Sonoma State University and I got my bachelor's in music there. Um, and I was actually in my first operetta at Sonoma State University. And I did um, Deflator Mouse. I was a Rolofsky. Mm-hmm. Did, did you do it? Did you do the English translation or did you do it? I in... did it in English. Cool. And actually it was like, an alternative English, so I was singing about hyphy cray cray dudes. <laughs> I was like, "Oh, this is Bay Area." <laughs> was, uh, was, was that with Lynn Morrow? Yep. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. She's awesome. Yeah, she's real cool. I was going to ask, um, how do your parents feel about this? I mean, are they like, "Wow, this is really, really weird"? But I'm sure they're like, "Wow, you're going to a Europe for this, and you know, you're getting cast and." I'm sure they have to be very proud, but I mean, yeah. they, was it a shock to them? No, I mean, interestingly enough, for as many people who have stories about like their parents not supporting them with music or whatever, I think my my dad always wanted to be an author and his life kind of took him in another direction. And my mom always wanted to be a singer and her life took her in another direction. And so for both of them, um, when I was like, no, this is what I'm doing, like come rain or shine, like no matter what seas I have to fare, like I'm going to mm-hmm. go out there and, and make my journey. They were pretty supportive. I mean, they they didn't have the funds to be like, yes, here, the world is an open book or whatever. But they, they were, you know, like, okay, great. That's what you want to do? Cool. Go right do it. On. No, yeah. it's, it's awesome to have a family that supports you. The, yeah. emotion, the emotional support was there. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. I, want to give, I want to give great praise to you because not only are you a great singer – and I think, Dave, when we were talking about um, Candide, when you were last on, we talked about you had to deal with actors who sing, but they don't have the, you know, they weren't trained as, you know, singers. Like, you know, if you, get, if you, if, when I look at an operetta or like a sheet music for operetta, I may see, you know, like fittissimo or, you know, some language <laughs> that I don't understand <laughs> or something. Um, and you also dealt with opera singers who don't know how to act. You know, they... <laughs> well... <laughs> Shots fired. No, um, no, 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 I know. Keep going. I'm not, I'm not mentioning names. <laughs> but, you know, there were some folks who were just, you know, they're just so sheltered that they're, they're in their, not used They're in their to. voice and not yeah, necessarily yeah, in their, their voice. Yeah. You, 
can do, you know, you, you did both. You know, we did Vanderbilt to, to, uh, together, that scene. And we were like, hey, we're going to be pirates. You know, you, you have to take <laughs> off the beautiful dress and, you know, put on a pirate thing. And it was like, hey, no big deal. Let's go. Let's do it. Yeah. And then, you know, you, I think you were, you were, because you were also the alternate to Angela Jaross's character. Kunagunda. Kunagunda, yes. And you had to be elegant. You could do both things. And, you know, yeah. that, that's a, it's an amazing thing. So, I mean, wouldn't you agree, Dave? Yeah, it's, it's so much of my work is um, reading the room and being like, okay, am I at a theater company that is doing a musical or an opera company that's doing a weird mm-hmm. musical or musical theater company that's doing an operetta, mm-hmm. <laughs> a Gilbert and Sullivan company that's doing, you know, mm-hmm. and, and where are we translating and, and being fluent in that. But so a lot of it is, okay, do I need to, what do they need from me to, to feel confident? And it's really fun to work um, with people like you, Rachel, that, that came from that background of theater, but that are just like, no, I also know how to like take this seriously and, and have the technique in their voice to to take on a role like Kunigando, which is, again, Candide is very, very, very rarely done in musical theater companies now. It's never done on Broadway anymore. <clears throat> Maybe in London every now and then, but um, whereas in an opera house, it would be like standard fare. You know, the New York New York City Opera when they came back. Um, they took it on and it's, it's, it, so it was really, it was really, really fun to be able to, to do that. Such a wild piece that needed so much just creativity Mm -hmm. and imagination from the cast, especially a cast like that size where you guys were all playing a million roles. I forget how many (laughs) roles you ended up playing, Reg, but. Um, probably three or four. At least. At least had, had to have been like 15 people cast. Yeah. And it was like, I've seen Candy done with like 60 people. Well, yeah. And so you guys were like, not just all your roles, but also important bit parts and understudies for the leads going on. Well, I had, yeah, I was Compromario for, I think like eight roles. Like it was a lot of just like random little walk on, like say a couple lines. And, yeah. then, and I, I was always like freaking out backstage because like our overhead wasn't very loud. So I was like, how do I know when I have to run back on stage? And it was right, great. Right, right, right. No. <laughs> And Wayne Rohde as as I think our stage. Oh my manager. God, Wayne! Oh, I love Wayne. Wayne is the man. Who's in L.A. now? Oh, yeah, yeah. Awesome. We were is, roommates for a bit. Is he yeah. still doing theater, or is he? I, I know he's done a lot over his life. Yeah, he. Um, I haven't talked to him in a while, so I don't man, know what he's doing right now. But I know I gotta that hit he, up Wayne. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, uh, there are a lot of folks who just had a very hard time, ha- you know, dealing with the finances, and you know, it was around yeah. that time where. You know, rents were just going up, and uh, yeah. so yeah, for sure. Yeah, him, he and I, we had a li- we had a, uh, a podcast called Dude for a little bit. Oh, cool. We lasted two episodes, and you know that was it. <laughs> but anyway, but what was your experience? I mean, was did you have a fun time doing Candide? Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, um, I will preface this by giving everyone the heads up: I am no longer a soprano. I am actually a mezzo soprano, and that is where my voice is happy, mm-hmm. and I'm very very happy with that. Um, but yeah. Candide was awesome. Getting the opportunity to study Kunigondo was awesome. Getting the opportunity to work with everybody was an absolute blast. And um, yeah, I I have always liked the theater element of performing. In high school, I did some straight theater. And um, like when I was in New York, I was working with, uh, I was telling you already, mm-hmm. uh, off mic, I was telling you that when I was in New York, I was working with a director and we kind of like worked on some things. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I... I had an absolute blast and like I always love characters that just kind of which obviously is part of why I like opera but I love characters who are just like so extreme 
<laughs> that you get to kind of have that catharsis with mm-hmm. the audience. Like you get to portray something or have some emotion that's like really loud or very extreme that, you know, I mean, not many of us are going to, you know, hopefully knock on wood, not many of us are going to die of tuberculosis and none of us probably are going to die of tuberculosis and sing for another <laughs> two hours. <laughs> yeah, that is the thing. I had a quick question about you. It's more of a technical thing because as an actor, sure. when I think about having an emotional role on stage, I'll think about beats. I'll think about objectives. I'll think about, um, you know, okay, so this is where, and, and when it comes to voice, I'll think mainly about my speaking voice, like I'll usually do some vocal exercises, my resonators, my articulators to make sure that when I scream or cry, I'm not putting any, um, you know, uh, force on strain on my voice. It's basically using the mask. Do you think in those terms when you're in, in opera, like how do you think about, I don't know, the voice or... Some people do. Mm-hmm. Um, my technique with my teacher and the joke I like to make is that I'm a trained monkey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so when I go to sing, I'm not thinking about my singing technique. My mm-hmm. technique is there and it's solid and I don't have to really think about it. Um, and so the biggest thing for me, the challenge that I face and that I've worked a lot to address over the years has been that I would actually go so far with the acting that it would cause something to be misaligned in Mm. my body for the sake of singing. So Mm. like, you know, my character's dad just told him like, the next time I see you, I'm going to kill you. And so my character is like falling on the floor and crying and so upset. And so it's like, what was helpful to me in working with the um, director in New York was we would kind of work with things and he would say like, okay, go to the extreme, go to where you want to go. And then if we need to reel it back, we'll find out a way to do that, but still have that authenticity. Right. So it's like you want to be able to have the authenticity, but you also want to be able to sing the music that these geniuses wrote, right? Right. So like whoever that genius is, whether it's a contemporary piece or, you know, an old piece or whatever, but... um, You don't want to get away in the way of the material. Exactly. So it's like you you don't want to feel the feelings so much that the audience can't feel them. So it's like some people, you know, it's like as an opera singer my character in that scene might be bawling their eyes out. But if I'm bawling my eyes out, you're mm-hmm. not going to hear me sing beautiful notes. <laughs> yeah. And then that stealing that experience from the audience. Cause then the audience doesn't get to cry at the mm-hmm. beautiful, gorgeous music of, you know, whoever it is. Yeah. Cause the la- the only couple of times that I've seen opera, usually I'll hear the beautiful voice, but I won't really feel anything because mm-hmm. it's, unless it's a great, great opera singer, because mm-hmm. I guess the emphasis is not in acting. It's the emphasis is in, well, let me hit, hit that voice. I remember seeing Pavarotti, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't know. I think it was stream PBS would stream Pavarotti every now and then in the seventies mm-hmm. and eighties. And everything is, you know, everyone is so make up, yeah. <laughs> caked in makeup and you see these grand gestures, but it never feels real. And I don't know mm-hmm. if that's uh, that's probably just me, you know, not an opera goer. Yeah, I think, I think it kind of depends on where you go, though, because like in New York, for example, it's like you can go to the grand opera houses. Obviously, there's the Met and there was a city opera, um, New York City Opera. But there's also like smaller companies like um, Heartbeat Opera, mm-hmm. which is phenomenal. And I highly recommend people look it up because they're amazing. Um, and uh, they will do super, super awesome uh, productions and they're really accessible. Sometimes they'll bring them out to the community or whatever. Um, and there's a lot of really, really talented people. And sometimes I think 
the smaller companies, not that you don't get a lot out of the bigger companies, but sometimes the smaller companies, I think, have a little more freedom with in the realm of taking a risk. Mm -hmm. They're like a little bit more willing to take risks um, because there's not quite as much on the line. So they will, you know, hire the new up and coming whoever that somebody else might not be willing to take a risk on. Director, designer, performer. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so, so you can get some people who are really doing amazing stuff and, um, and it can be, it can be really, really cool to see. So I've, I've seen some of my favorite shows. Um, I've seen it like really tiny, you know, little kind of hole in the wall type places, mm -hmm. um, that are running things on a shoestring budget. And it's just like, well, that is some phenomenal art. And I mean, I've also seen some things that I was blown away with at, you know, San Francisco opera mm -hmm. and like, um, they did a production of Dolores Claiborne, which was really, mm. really awesome. And just like visually what was happening was really cool. The singers were really amazing. Um, just like all around, I was like enraptured and I was like, Oh, this is awesome. But, um, it feels like, yeah, at larger companies, it's so, when there's so much at stake, I think you're, mm -hmm. I really, really agree with you on the statement that it's, there's so much at stake that. There's risk aversion. Yeah. Like there's, I've heard this, um, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And also, I, I also think like, you know, in theater, the director and film, you know, the, mm -hmm. the director is, is a director's medium. The director's in charge. Yeah, that's and right. In opera, the conductor has first billing. The composer is, you know, like the name said in hushed tones. <laughs> Nobody even knows the librettist half the time, the audience at least. Sure, sure. Sometimes some of the performers. Yeah. That's and so, not true in, in Germany anymore, though. Okay, in that, Germany, it's now great. all about the directors. Ah, interesting. Ah. For a lot of the places. Why, why do you think that is? I don't know. I mean, the pendulum swings in all sorts of directions. So I think it's just, you know, the time period that we're at. And, and, you know, I mean, I haven't lived in Germany for the last like 30 years, so I would be lying if I pretended to know why. <laughs> no, but like you're, 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 you've got, you've, you've got your pulse, your finger on the pulse there more than I'd say read your eye. <laughs> yeah. But would you say the, would you say the conductors are not, while what, the directors are putting more of their stamp artistically, would you say like, I mean, for me, just whenever I'm working in an opera company, which is not that often, but um, when it's time for uh, a dress rehearsal or something or other things, a lot of times the stage manager will look to me first, like, is it okay to stop? Can we do this? And mm -hmm. in a theater production, it's not that I'm always relegated to second in command, but um, which sometimes I like, but they literally just think of like the conductor is in charge. And I'm I'm curious is it, is it, do you find it that way in Germany too like that it, it still turns of that hierarchy or is that hierarchy more fluid there? Yeah, so the the productions that I worked on were the conductor and directors seem to be more on even footing. Mm. Um, but I have heard from some people that like in Europe, the director kind of takes first go of things and has a lot more control. And I think maybe in some ways that's just because. People in Europe, you know, if they're seeing, I don't know, the Magic Flute or uh, Lohengrin or whatever, it, you know, the audience, it might be their 15th or 30th time singing it so or seeing it, with it because they're, they're very familiar with it. So it, it fall, the public kind of, they have this idea, at least, that the public wants to see something new. They want you to liven it up and make changes and make mm. something interesting happen so that they'll be, 
you know, more engaged with it or something. Um, Whereas here, we're just lucky if the opera happens at all. <laughs> well, I mean, I've, right. I feel like, you know, that opens it, on up the a bi- whole debate about yeah. a bunch of other things. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, like I said, the pendulum swings in all different directions. And, and I haven't been working that long in Europe to say, you know, absolutely the conductor is always in charge or absolutely the director is always in charge. I'm sure it depends on the company, but I have heard in general that the director has a lot more say than at least they had in the past or like they're a lot more important in the room than they necessarily were in the past. Um, I don't know how true that is, but you know, take it for, you know, your two cents or whatever, and then go do your own research. (laughs) I want to be respectful of people's time. It's eight. uh, We've gone an hour. I can go on even further, but is there a hard out? Do people need to leave? Uh, I can't say super late, but yeah. Okay, no, and awesome. Because I did have a, a couple of other questions. We've yeah. had a lot of conversations with women about sexual harassment, the Me Too movement, and all that stuff. Sure. Have you had to go through any of that? I don't know if that's even oh, prevalent yeah. in the opera world. Oh yeah, uh-huh. it's very prevalent. Um, that was there was a very major thing that happened at the Met with um, James Levine. That wasn't specifically for I think women. I may have heard uh, yeah, about, but that. Yeah, yeah, he had a whole big like sexual scandal thing and. That all came out, and it was a big deal. But um, me, personally, yes, I have been in a cast where one of my fellow cast members decided to stalk me and was, like, obsessed with me, and the people were like, well, he's a tenor, and we can't really replace him, so we'll just have, like, some people kind of follow him around. And so that was a whole ball of wax. Um, That's awful. I'm sorry. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, It really sucks. Um, And, uh, I mean, I've had... I don't I don't necessarily think it's necessarily any different for my experience versus people in any other field but I mean yeah directors people in charge who you know yeah. make some comment or say something or try to you know move their hand or their body in a way and you just like step back and you know kind of like state your boundaries or your ground rules but do you, do you find that companies that you work with are sensitive to that sort of stuff because in the theater community especially in the last couple of years there are like intimacy coaches mm-hmm. and there are directors who will tell you or production managers who will say the very first day of rehearsal, hey, we have a policy of dealing with sexual harassment. So this is what will happen and this is what will not happen. Um, yeah. Have you, are things getting better, do you think, on your um, half? I think it's possible that things are getting better. I think because, uh, so it's really cool that you brought that up because one of my really good friends in New York is, Alicia Rodas, and mm. she's the the woman who um, she and two other women kind of started basically the entire industry of intimacy uh, ah, directing. Yeah, yeah. and um, so she she now works for HBO, but um, she's been on all these you know the cover of all these magazines wow. and interviews with all these people. Nice, but nice, um, yeah. but yeah, so it's it's a really interesting field. I have a very close relationship with somebody who's like really into it and I have done some of the workshops and things um I think it's very helpful in a lot of ways um and I think that it's not quite as prevalent or not quite necessarily always in people's mind as much as it should be yeah but I do think more people are starting to think about it there more more people are starting to become aware of it even in the acting and theater world, there were people who, like actors and actresses, who were like, I don't need that. Like, I've done sex scenes before. Like, why would I need another person in the room? And then they had this um, 
person this like added tool in their toolbox and by the end of whatever they were working on they were like oh my gosh this was amazing all I can do is recommend it to other people it's mm -hmm. phenomenal um, so I think the more the word gets out the more yeah I think I think definitely like we're moving in a good direction no that that is awesome and I tend to think, I mean, I'm a Generation Xer, uh, so I was born in a time where you had men and women, you know, they, they didn't think about those things. So they were like, oh, my goodness, you know, what are these liberals, you know, why are they bugging me with this or that or that? I think the younger generation are a lot more attuned. I'm hearing younger men in the theater, you know, in the rehearsal space saying, oh, well, let me make sure that I, you know, even things like pronunciations and mm -hmm. being respective to the LGBTQ plus community. Yeah. Um, so I think that's... I, th I think it's a wonderful thing that, you know, that we have a younger generation who are being brought up in the Me Too movement and being yeah. respectful of people's, um, because theater is a very intimate thing. Mm -hmm. And I imagine, you know, even in the opera world, there's oh, yeah. a lot of uh, intimacy or just displaying of emotions. And so you have to be very, very careful because, you know, you can, you can damage someone. Someone can have a really, really bad experience and say, I don't ever want to do art anymore. And I don't want to theater anymore or whatever because of one yeah. experience. Yeah, and I mean, even... Like some of the good things that they bring up, I'm, obviously I'm not an intimacy coordinator or conductor, I, or whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. um, I don't want to pretend that I am, but the workshops that I've been to and where they've explained things, it's like, you know, even just checking in with your scene partner, and this is a scene that you've done like 14 times and all you're doing is hugging or kissing or whatever, just checking in with the person being like, hey, how do you feel physically today? Is does, Did you twist your wrist? Does your shoulder hurt a lot? Like, is there mm -hmm. something that I should avoid? Because what you don't want is in that moment that there's supposed to be closeness that's telegraphed to the audience. Mm -hmm. That person has like a physical injury or something, so they tense up, and then the audience is confused, and they're like, wait, is that character mad at that yeah. character? What's going on? I mean, and that's even outside of the fact that like the actual actor should be, you know, respected respected and, and safe and yeah. comfortable yeah. as much as possible. Um, yeah. It's better for the individuals. It's better for the work. Yeah, it's yeah, better exactly. for the individuals. Like the audience gets a lot better uh quality out of it at the end of the day so it's like there's so many facets to it that i think people don't understand or they don't think of and they do talk about beats you know you were talking about beats earlier it's mm -hmm. like they'll talk about like okay how long how many breaths or whatever is this hug gonna last how yeah. are you gonna do this if, if these two people haven't seen each other in so many years and mm -hmm. they're mad at each other how do you telegraph that mm -hmm. how do you telegraph it if it's this how do you so it's like it's really really cool work and if you do the work, it leads to it being so much better. Yes. And, and the it's audience like, can, again, can relate to it. Yeah. They it's like the it. audience might have a hard time putting their finger on why it's better or why it rang more true to them, but mm -hmm. it just will. Like yeah. it won't ring some bell in their subconscious that they're like, ah, that doesn't look right. Yeah. I hear you. I totally hear you. Yeah. No, that's awesome. Talk to me about the business of, I guess, opera. Um, sure. <laughs> do you, because I've talked with other actors and we've talked about actors' equity and mm -hmm. being in SAG after or not being in equity because a lot of times if you hook up with a union, you've written yourself an offer of, you know, many theater companies who are like, sorry, we can't sign you because we don't have the money for you. Mm -hmm. um, have you had an issue uh, with, I mean, how much is an opera? How much are you paid? I'm not going to ask personally how much <laughs> are you paid, but. Do you um, do you think of yourself as a business? Uh, how is it uh, negotiating whatever your contract may be? Yeah, sure. So, um, so it is a business. You do have to consider yourself to be like your own business, um, and it's it's interesting because 
basically you can start negotiating higher fees for yourself sometimes that's best if you're doing it once you have like an agent or a manager to do that for you mm -hmm. um, once you're once you have so much work that you're like I can't possibly take all of this work so then you have somebody who helps not only you know potentially hopefully get you higher fees but then also somebody who can help kind of guide you and be like uh maybe hold off on that role for a couple of years you know you may not vocally maybe Verity isn't right for you right now or you know whoever um but uh sorry my brain is kind of like Whoa. no 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 it's <laughs> fine but I mean I know that you know a lot of actors you know let's say a company will say hey we want to hire you we'll pay you two hundred dollars three hundred dollars or they'll mm -hmm. try to lowball you oh yeah um and a lot of actors especially young actors will be like well I don't I feel a little strange saying that I don't want to take it or I want more money. They don't even know how to start that conversation. Yeah. And I, know, I don't know if you had to go through something like that in the opera world. I mean, me personally. Do, do you have an agent? I do not. Not okay. as of yet. Um, so I had one person who approached me in um, Austria. He came and saw my show and he wanted me to sign with him, but he wanted me to sign a, um exclusive contract. And in Europe, that's not really something that's done anymore. They don't really do exclusive contracts that mm. you have multiple people that you sign with. Um, so I didn't sign it for a couple of reasons. I didn't sign it because of that. I didn't sign it because we were coming out of COVID. And I was like, well, even if this person was really, really, really well connected and in normal times would be able to get me a bunch of jobs and help me out. Like um, I was talking to a bass friend of mine in the show and he was like, dude, I'm a bass and I have a number of agents and managers and they're having a hard time getting me work right now because of COVID because so many things have been shut down or that, you know, they only have two performances instead of eight or whatever. And yeah. so he's like, signing an exclusive contract is not a good idea right now. Um, so I think, however, that said, that's like the only way they do it in the U.S. Mm, like yeah. In the U.S., you have to sign an exclusive contract, duh. So every every place has their own kind of thing with that stuff mm -hmm. i'm still sort of new to all that stuff i have one friend um gilad i'm forgetting his last name mean last names um but uh he he actually like coaches uh people so he he does um something called the marketable musician mm. and he will coach mm. people on like figuring out their rates figuring out if something is worth their time like mm. and that's for everything across the board. He'll work with cantors. He'll work with, you know, opera singers, a variety of musicians. And, and one of his big things is he's like, you know, you can't work with this idea of like scarcity of like, Oh, I have to take the job because if I don't take the job, but then, you know, you're getting paid pennies and you, you can't even pay for, you know, your gas to get to and from, or if you're in New York, you know, your, you know, transit pass or whatever. Sure, so it's sure. like, Everybody has to negotiate that kind of stuff in their own time and in their own way. And um, for me, I've just kind of always been on a very strict budget. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's kind of... But I'm I like, imagine yeah. with every new job, it's getting better. Like what you're doing right now with... Yeah. Um, Verismo Opera. Verismo, uh, yeah. Yeah. But I imagine they're, they're taking care of you. I imagine, you, you know, they're paying you more than, let's say, you know, in the past. I, I, I just imagine as, as your resume grows you have more leverage to say, hey, listen, I've done this, so this is how much I'm worth. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it, it depends on the company. It depends on the company's budget and the people you're working with and the role. And so it, it very much varies. So I've talked to some people and some of the advice that I received that I really appreciated was basically, if you're going to take a job, you want two of the three goals, which is, you know, people you want to work with, mm-hmm. a role you want to work with, and the money that you want. Um, and if you get two of those three then it's probably something worth doing. If you get all three, fantastic. Most people don't always get all three. You know, mm-hmm. it's a role yeah. they really want, and they're getting paid a lot of money. But, but you're you going to have to work with some people who are really egotistical and kind of a jerk. Or, yeah. you know, so it's like you kind of walk this line of making choices, and hopefully life hands you enough of a mixed bag that you can kind of dance the dance and figure out what works best for you. Yeah. And that's going to be different for each person. Um for this one, it, it was funny because it was like, oh, Verismo, and I was I was chatting with them about something else, that the, a potential project that they might do in the future because they had already hired for their um, mezzos in this opera. And so I was like, well, obviously, I, you know, I'm not going to do it. And they uh, they lost their baritone for, for one of the casts. And the role is Valentin. And mm-hmm. I'm born on Valentine's Day. You're gonna be a baritone. You're gonna. Do yeah, it? I'm singing a baritone. It's it's hey, okay. it's up the octave for me, but okay. um, but it, we turned it into a pants roll. They were like, they're like, well, I don't know what you're doing, but if you would be available, and they were like, you know, because they're also they also turned um, Mephistopheles, which is the devil's character. Mm-hmm. They turned his uh, role into a pants roll as well for Rachel Warner, Warner, Warmer, Warner, Warner. Yes. Um, so she's she's a contralto and. Uh, that is not something that I could sing even up the octave, but <laughs> but Valentine, I was like, oh yeah, I can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just funny because they, they like brought it up to me and I was like, all right, well, let me take a look at the music. And I like looked at it and I was like, oh yeah, this, this feels really good. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I was like, well, it's Valentine. My, my birthday's Valentine's day. This was just meant to be. And then I, <laughs> I took it to my voice teacher and he was like, oh, this music fits you so well. So even like the aria from this opera, um, it's not typically a mezzo aria, but I, I have a concert coming up and I'm going to sing it for the concert nice. because it fits my voice so well and I enjoy singing it. And I was like, well, and also Guno was just <clears throat> chef's kiss. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, that like, is fantastic. Yeah. Dave, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Did you have a Jeff question? <laughs> no, I, I, it's probably, yeah, that, no, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I but love as far as the business, I'll ask you, David, because uh, I'm sure not only do you do awesome orchestra, but you do other things. Like you work with other um, companies as a conductor. Do you get into these contract negotiations? I mean, is it easy? Is it hard? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes to all the above. I'm, I'm, yeah, I've been, since I moved here, I've been a freelance conductor and music director. Mm-hmm. And I've been really lucky to do that. But yeah, it's a, it's... At first, when you're starting out, <clears throat> for a lot of people, I think it was true for me at least, you you have one goal, which is to work with people you want to work with and, and do the work, and then you find a way to make mm-hmm. ends meet. I like those three roles of yours. Those, those, that's awesome. Yeah, I yeah. can't remember who the genius was that told it to me, but I, I heard it, and I put it on my thinking cap, and I was like, all right, I'll, I'll keep this. It's, abs- <laughs> it's absolutely true. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I've over the years you the moment you start thinking like oh well uh, this one gig looks really interesting mm-hmm. um 
but it doesn't pay that much. And there's another one that pays really well, but you really don't want to do it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, every time I found when I choose the work that I am least interested in, or I'm just going for the money, not, not that it even pays that well. It just yeah. pays better than yeah, we're so yeah. used to not that much that we, uh, I think it reflects in the work, at least for me as a music director and conductor. I can't, you know, if it's a, a show or a project that I, my heart is just not in, I'll do a mediocre job. Hmm. I mean, like I could totally do it and it would be fine, I think, but, mm-hmm. and it just kind of, phoned in or something. it just kind of wears, yeah, it wears me down. It takes, it's, I, I'd, I'd rather not be there, I guess, maybe yeah, yeah. not, not to feel, not to sound too, um, <clears throat> you know, all, uh, high and mighty or anything but just you know there's certain shows there's certain roles and certain people we want to work with and so it, it, it comes down to that sometimes you're really stuck and you just say Ugh. the rehearsal periods over y'all have both been this a million times I'm sure the rehearsal periods overlap or I can't do this yeah, or the, yeah. it finally does work out perfectly and the schedule and then you don't get the part or it's just mm-hmm. or you know they, they tell you how much it is and you're like that's going to be like a couple months work and that's not even one month's rent, you know? Yeah. Right, right. Or like way, yeah. way, way less than that. And so <laughs> it's so much about, um, for me, it is about anytime you, you do something that your heart is in, it's more, I think it's easier to work to find a way to raise the budget and, and ask them okay. for what you're worth mm-hmm. than it is to do projects for more money that you don't care about i think there's a it costs you both ways it's yeah. different costs yeah mm-hmm. and one of those costs i'd rather not the, the kind that wears me down or that yeah. leaves me depleted at the end of the day rather yeah. than rejuvenated yeah yeah I, is it a, is it a cost that's like investing in your energy and yeah. then you're gonna have the energy to yeah. go figure out funding or is it a cost that's gonna drain your energy yeah, yeah. Well, if and you're you know anytime you i think anytime you say um What's the saying? Give me just a second. Sorry. It's okay. If you, it's okay. If you um, a guy I worked with, this, this wacky, crazy, interesting, kind of a true genius. This guy Van Dyke Parks. He was a he was a lyricist for a lot of the Beach Boys early stuff. He's oh, a composer, yeah. songwriter, yeah. just songwriting partner of Brian Wilson. Wacky, crazy, brilliant guy, pianist, arranger. I got to work with him in an awesome orchestra a number of years ago through some connections. Uh, he'd done a bunch of orchestral song cycles. So we, we had him up and we figured out a way to do it. Mm-hmm. And I remember he said to me in this, his sort of wacky voice, he was like, David, you must remember your best work always lies ahead of you. <laughs> and I just never forgot that. Yeah. So. It's funny. I, as you guys were talking, I have two antidotes. So I had one job. It was actually at the Gateway Theater, uh, and it paid very well. And I just hated it. <laughs> I was uh-huh. stressed out. Uh, the tech was all messed up. We only had one, and I had to. I was. Um, I was doing sound, and I had to balance the orchestra as well as the cast. Mm-hmm. And it was a cast of high school students. They were actually very talented, but um, the cuticle was just messed up, and I was under pins and needles, and the director was unhappy, and people were dropping out. A, a stage manager got fired. Oh, yikes. 
And it was like, okay, I'm being paid a lot of money, but my God, I can't wait for this thing to be over. <laughs> and yeah. I don't want to tell anyone about this production. And yeah. and then there was another production. Actually, it was a production I, I said I would not do. And it was about um, the Pullman Porters. It was actually a very important story. Um, mm-hmm. I'll just say it because we've talked about it before. On the It was at the Maskers. And I was like, wow, okay, this is something I want to do. And they were like, well, we can only afford $100 mm-hmm. for the entire uh, run of the thing. I'm like, that's, um, and I wound up not doing it, not because I'm, you know, I'm egotistical and I want people more, but I was like, wait a minute, this company owns its own theater. So it's not even like they have to pay rent mm. for their own thing. And they've got a board of directors. Mm. How could they not? And I, I yeah. you know, had a bunch of emails from, with them. I was like, Hey, um, I don't understand what's going on here. And they just had a policy. It's not like, you know, cause I've worked with companies that were like, Listen, we're a young company. We really don't have it, and we really apologize. But you know, can we work something out? There's like, listen, it's our policy. We just don't pay you know actors that much money, and you know, we we can find plenty of volunteers to do it. And I'm like, this is just disrespectful. So yeah, yeah about it. I'm, at that I'm point, just, you're going to get volunteer level then. Yeah. Well, or at least you should. Like that's the problem is if people go from a mindset of scarcity and they're like, exactly. oh, I just have to take it because it's an opportunity. Right. Then places can get away with that and that's right that was a lot of what was happening in the past hopefully we're crossing our fingers that it's not quite so much in anymore but Mm -hmm. in the opera world was a lot of companies were just kind of taking advantage especially of sopranos because there's so many Mm -hmm. sopranos auditioning for every role and so they're they're like they would have no issue with paying way less for a soprano than they hmm. would for a tenor or a baritone or a bass wow, because so they need the males. Yeah. And they're like, oh, well, I can find another soprano. And so there are a lot of sopranos that then they get offered a job or whatever and they don't feel comfortable necessarily, um, whether this is, you know, it's, it's a debatable topic, but, you know, they'll be like, well, I kind of need more money for my fee and, like, I would – negotiate but like I don't feel like I have the power going into that room because I'm really easy to replace Mm. and so there's you know there's that going on which it's it's very interesting because you know if you look back historically there was one soprano who you know she owned a castle and her town literally built a stop for the train right in front of her castle Mm -hmm. and it also had a stop for the train at in front of the theater so that the train could stop in front of her castle and she could Mm -hmm. come out and go to the theater for work maria callas a very famous opera singer Mm -hmm. okay this wasn't i don't think she owned a castle (laughs) no she didn't own a castle but 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 it has happened in the past so it's it's interesting like in the past who got paid a lot of money who gets paid a lot of money now in productions like that stuff is shifting and i think it's always going to shift and it you know it's one of those like the pendulum swings yeah and you just you know ride it out and see see where things go (laughs) i hear you i hear you so um we should wrap it up but where do you see yourself in the future i mean where do you see yourself five ten years from now do you think you'll be back in Europe? Well, we've talked about you may be back in Europe, but yeah. um, what do you, where do you eventually want to? I don't know. Where do you see yourself as? Doing? Uh, that's a that's a hard question to answer because I absolutely adore New York. New mm-hmm. York City is like my home now. Like I grew up in California, but New York City is my home. However, I really really love Europe. I loved Austria. Austria is absolutely amazing. Um, I loved. The UK. I'm going back to the UK this this summer for a couple of months, and I'm going to kind of go around Europe and audition again. And I think ultimately it's probably just going to be a matter of like I like travel. I like a lot of different places, 
and it's just going to be a matter of where I find my people and like my tribe and yeah. the people that I can make art with. And if it ends up in New York, if it ends up in the Bay Area, if it ends up in um, Europe or, you know, Istanbul, you know, whatever. <laughs> like, sure, it's sure. just, it's, it's one of those things, that, you know, like, I'm like, well... To my knowledge, at the moment, Hawaii doesn't have an opera house. But if it did, I would not say no. <laughs> I, I would love to. I've, I've been to Hawaii, and I would love to retire there. So I totally hear you. I was just thinking to myself because you've been when you were in Germany. There was a lot of political stuff happening here in the United States that oh, you were yeah. away from. Yeah. Did that shock you? I mean, you know, I don't think you were here when Trump, uh, when Biden won the election, or were you? Or were you? I was. I was. Yeah. Okay. Um, so were I you mean, here when Trump? Uh, got elected? Yes. Okay. Yes, yes. Yeah. I was she, only I was only in right Germany after. for like one year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was only in Germany for one year. But Okay. Um but yeah, so I mean there was definitely an element of me hanging out with some other um Americans and we were we were like, Oh yeah, it's kinda nice to just be away from all that <laughs> right yeah, now. Yeah. It's a it's a nice little like, you know, pump the brakes on all that. Sure, sure. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> So who knows where where you'll be uh, in the future? But uh, I um, do you have an online thing uh, like oh, a YouTube yeah. video or SoundCloud or something yeah, like that? Yeah. So I have my website, which is Rachel Dethridge Mezzo um, dot com. Was, de- was Rachel Dethridge dot com st- taken already? Rachel Dethridge dot com was taken by I think it was like a realtor, <sighs> and it's not even an active website anymore. Like it just like you type it in and it goes to like a blank screen or something. Oh, that's but sucks. if you at yeah. this point if you type in my name, like you'll get a bunch of photos of me and you'll yeah. get like it's very obvious and, and like you don't even really have to type in the website. It just it's Rachel Death Rage and Death Rage is death like I'm dying, E like an elephant, and rage like I'm really, really mad and I promise I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. And we'll have a link we'll have a link to that. We'll have a link to uh what you'll be doing in Vallejo. Um Verismo uh, 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 Opera Opera, and yeah. you'll be Valentin. Yeah, and so that'll that's be... this weekend and next weekend. Next weekend is our closing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Saturdays, we have Saturday evening performances, and then Sunday is a matinee. And then in April, I have a concert that I'm doing in Napa um, mm-hmm. at Jarvis Conservatory. So I'm doing a concert out there, and I have a special guest, and you can find more information for that on my website. And uh, it's actually like a concert series almost because I have another one happening in Fair Oaks, but that one's kind of like a closed, invite-only, like party circumstance type thing. But uh-huh. it's it's really exciting. It's, it's awesome. You're it's you're, you're on the you're on the move, and yeah. uh, you know, and of course, you're incredibly talented. So I'm, I'm oh, just thanks. excited that you're doing all these wonderful things. Yeah. What's happening with the Awesome Orchestra? Uh, are you guys doing anything special? Yeah, it's our tenth year anniversary, ten year anniversary season, and mm-hmm. so uh, we've got a whole uh, series of events coming up where playing um at uh, cal academy nightlife uh, march 23rd uh an all video game music session hey i yeah. would love that <laughs> i would love for you to come yeah uh, and in april we'll be at on earth day we'll be at chabot space and science center uh-huh. uh in may we'll be back at cal academy uh we're gonna be all over the bay area um this whole year playing uh, all our favorite stuff from the last 10 years, new stuff, ton of, ton of new stuff, ton of our favorites. So you can find that out at awesomeorchestra.org. Yeah. And we'll have a link to that as well. And there are a couple of shows that are going on and I will uh, just touch on 
some of the things that are happening. Uh, Tasha, I am stage managing that Three Girls Theater, and we finished. We just finished our first week, and so we're starting our second week starting tomorrow. Janae Simon is just a fantastic actress, and it's a one-one show about Natasha McKenna, who was a woman who was tragically killed by uh, sheriff deputies. Uh, this happened in 2015, so mm-hmm. it's a protest piece. But it's still very powerful. It's one hour and it's at Z space. I'm sorry, Z below. And so we have a link for that. That uh, will end March the 18th. Um, the Pear Theater is doing Richard Third, And that'll be March the 9th through the 26th. Julian Lopez Marias is in the show and he's been on the yay. So check that out. Tea Party uh, is playing at ACT Strand Theater March the 2nd through the 19th. Aaron Merritt is directing the play. Chastity Jamal Brown is in the play. Both of them have been on the A, and I'll have a link to that. Um, Songs for a New World is being uh, played at Gateway Theater. It's a benefit for Swing Left, which is an organization that builds a lasting culture of grassroots participation in winning elections for the left by making it easy as possible for anyone to have maximum impact on the elections that determine the balance of power in our country. That is a mouthful, but basically swing left. They help recruit. They help recruit and they do um, fundraising and also um, voter registration for candidates, uh, Democrat candidates. And my good friend Jessica Coker Moore, also a fantastic singer. Have you worked with her, David? Yeah, love Jess. She's awesome. Done a bunch of shows together. Yeah. Bat Boy the Musical, which is a poster right behind you. She was in that. And uh, I worked with her with that. That'll be March the 2nd, I'm sorry, the 12th and the 13th. Little Shop of Horrors is being played at the Chanticleers Theater, February the 10th through March the 5th. Um, Two good friends of mine, Curtis Manning and Max Chang, are in that show, so check that out. Sixth Street Playhouse is doing A Raisin in the Sun, that classic by Lorraine Hansberry. March the 2nd through the 19th, a good friend of mine, Terrence Smith, is in that show, so check that out. Theater Rhinoceros is doing A Guide for the Homesick. Uh, That ends March the 19th. Alan Casmorio is directing the show, and he once directed me, and he's been on the A, and we have a link for that. Sankofa Theater Company is doing the piano lesson, and we our last guest of the A, uh, Tanika Baptiste, she's directing the show, and so we're pumping that March the 3rd through the 5th, so there are only three days to do to check that out. San Francisco Shakes is doing A Midsummer Night's Dream, March the 1st through May the 6th, so there's plenty of time to watch that, and um, Alan Coyne is in that show, and Alan Coyne has been in everything, and he's been a guest on the A. Uh, a couple of times, so check that out. Paradise Blue, they've extended their run. That'll um, They close March the 6th. Uh, that'll be at the Aurora Theater. Michael Ashbury is in the show. Dominique Williams is directing the show, so check that out. San Francisco Playhouse is doing Clue, March the 9th through April 22nd. Dorian Lockett and Eiko Yamamoto are in that show, so check that out. Um, Mon- Mondragolia, <laughs> it's a play... Uh, written by Gary Graves, who is um, <clears throat> who heads up Central Works, and he's also a sponsor of the A. Um, but uh, that'll be March the 18th through April the 16th, and Jan's Leifler is directing the show, so check that out. And the last show that I'm going to uh, pump, uh, Theodore Anastas is doing Sticky Rice. It is a free stage reading on one day only, March the 14th. Eli Sonny Orkiza is directing that reading. Eli Sonny Orkiza is also involved in a play which will be at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. So that is awesome. And I'm always one to pump local Bay Area talent that's doing amazing and wonderful things. 
Um, there are a couple of other uh, podcasts. Uh, Barry Graves, who uh, wrote a play called Four Men in Paris, and he was my lead actor. <clears throat> and he has a podcast called The Black Man's Heart. And that'll, uh, that's on Spotify, all of your, the, the podcast apps. Check that out. Mallory Samara, who is our uh, consulting producer. Um, we've talked about her boyfriend, Carmelo Trianjo, who was mm-hmm. in Candide. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mallory, uh, her day job is KCBS Radio, and she is producing two podcasts, one called It's Generational. It's a deep dive on how generations look at things differently. So basically, she, she interviews people from Generation X, and the baby boomers and the millennials, post-millennials. Like, let's say one topic is work. You know, uh, we complain that post-millennials are slackers or, you know, say, <laughs> and hey, baby boomers say the Generation Xers, that we were slackers. So it's so that's uh, what the podcast is all about. And the other podcast is As Prescribed, where she talks to people in the medical facilities about certain medical issues that go on. So check those out. Central Works has a um, podcast called the Central Works Script Club, where you can download and read a play script and then listen to an audio interview with the playwright. It's delivered semi-annually. And Bindlestiff Studios, a wonderful Philippine um, theater company, they have a podcast called The Fobcast, exploring Philippine-American immigrant stories. (sighs) Okay. (laughs) I'm totally done. Nice work. (laughs) Um, Rachel, did you enjoy uh, yourself here? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Thanks thank you. so much. Yeah. yeah, thank you so much. And Dave, thank you so much. It's a Wednesday evening. I had no idea I would be able to get you guys on, but this is awesome. Very, <laughs> hey. very cool. And that is it. Oh, I'm sorry. I should pump that we have jerseys. Yay jerseys. And uh, people who have been supporting the Yay have bought jerseys. I've been posting pictures of people wearing the jerseys. Um, one is white. One is black. I have them on the table here. And uh, if you want a jersey, it's $30. Just... Uh, you know, send me a instant messaging and we'll talk about, you know, you can Venmo me the money and um, support uh, Bay Area podcast that supports Bay Area theater. That is that. And uh, we're on Spotify. We're on Overcast. We're on SoundCloud. Um, the A was created by theater people for theater people. If you have a show you want to advertise or if you just want to advertise yourself, let us know. Hit us up. Our Twitter feed is the A3. I'm at Red Space Clay. Norman is at Hoosier Hoosier. Um, you can find Rachel at Rachel Deathridge um, Mezzo. Uh, on Instagram, I'm uh, Deathridge Confidential. Okay, yeah. but I was talking about your website. <laughs> oh, my website. Yeah, that yeah. one's that one's Rachel Deathridge Mezzo. Not so confidential now. You just <laughs> well, <laughs> well, that's why I, I don't know. I I love dad jokes, so I I make jokes in my head that I think are funny, and as long as I. Enjoy it. That's what matters. <laughs> there right? you go. There you go. So if anyone's looking for a wonderful uh, mezzo-soprano singer, mezzo-singer, um, or a great actress, I would love to see you, you know, do a, a drama or, you know, maybe yeah, even a, yeah. a or voice comedy. Acting. I mean, I would I would do something for a video game in a heartbeat. Yeah. Call me up. <laughs> I, I've actually, I've done that before and I've, I've absolutely loved it. And you can do, you can do the yeah. same thing too. All right. We're going to close it up. Thank you so much. And as Norman and I always say, we got to find a better sign off. And we are...